Now, as we come to 2 Timothy chapter 3, you will remember that we have expounded the entire chapter. We did this uh, a couple of weeks ago. We concluded expounding the third chapter. But I mentioned to you that I wanted to come back and think a little bit more about verse 16. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's bow our heads in worship and prayer, and then we will read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Our Father, as we continue our exposition of the pastoral epistles, and we recall that the Apostle Paul gave his life for the Savior, we pray that we may give our all for him too. He loved us and gave himself for us. We would in turn give ourselves to serve the one who saves us from our sins. And we thank you for the word of God, inerrant in the whole and in the part, that it is trustworthy, that it is reliable, and that it is the foundation for our very lives, for time, and for eternity. Open our hearts to receive your truth from this text and from other passages of Scripture, and give to us, we also pray, in this service, souls that would come to know Jesus by submitting to the teaching of your word today. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter 3, I would like to read verses 16 and 17 assuming that you recall the context. This is God's Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, I've mentioned this to you before, but when I think of this passage, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I recall that when I was 13 years old, my mother gave me a book wonderful thing when a mom gives her children books, good books. And the book that she gave me was the book by W.A. Criswell, the famed pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, that was entitled, Why I Preach That the Bible is Literally True. And as a 13-year-old boy reading that book, I was captivated by what I read. It was a first volley in Southern Baptist circles as liberalism was capturing institution after institution, and it was a delight to read a clear affirmation of the full inspiration and authority of the Bible by this intelligent pastor. Now later, of course, I came to read great Reformed writers on the subject, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, E.J. Young, and many others, but this little book by this pastor was influential in my own life. Later, as a student at Mercer University in my undergraduate work, I heard one of my teachers speaking to a prospective uh, student and uh, also the student's parents against the inerrancy of the scriptures. And in the classroom, the same. The school that was founded by Jesse Mercer, this Bible believer, and now they were teaching against the inspiration, authority, reliability of the Bible. However, the historic position of the church has always been for the inspiration of the Bible and its authority. I give you several quotations. Irenaeus, being most properly assured that the scriptures are indeed perfect since they were spoken by the word of God and his spirit. Augustine, I believe most firmly that no one of those authors has erred in any respect in his writing. Martin Luther, the scriptures have never erred. John Calvin speaks of the certain and unerring rule, the Bible. 
John Wesley. How often do you hear me quote John Wesley? If there be any mistakes in the Bible, there may well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. Now, that is the historic position of the church. And it's derived from the Bible itself and what the Bible teaches about its own inspiration and authority. Now, of course, it's common to hear that belief in the inspiration of the Bible is now out of date. But I discovered as a student at Mercer that the issue was quite different, that it really is a matter of presuppositions. The modern denial of the Bible's authority did not come from the facts, but from the facts viewed through the philosophical lens of the Enlightenment, that period, the 18th century basically, that asserted man's radical intellectual and moral autonomy, and so had no place for an authority outside of man, and that is still the prevailing viewpoint. And so a scholar such as R.H. Charles looks at Daniel chapter 5, And he says, this chapter is notable for its historical inconsistencies. A believing scholar, such as E.J. Young, looks at Daniel chapter 5, and he says, this chapter is notable for its remarkable accuracies. You see the difference? It's a matter of the presuppositions, the lens through which you are viewing the facts, not the facts themselves. The whole question is, whose presuppositions are correct? Now, I want my people, my flock to have confidence in the Bible and to understand the Bible's teaching about its own inspiration. I can do just so much in one sermon, but I haven't preached in two weeks, so we're going to do a lot. (laughs) But for now, let me say that there is no viewpoint so rationally satisfying as the historic position, and you have nothing intellectually to be ashamed of in holding to the Bible's authority. God's Word is clear because it is His Word, And God promises to scatter darkness, and I am bold to assert actually that you can understand nothing rightly if you do not understand it under the authority of this book. Now let me summarize the biblical viewpoint for you. God's written word is free from error in its original autographs, original manuscripts. It is infallible, incapable of deceiving. It is inerrant. That is to say, it is not false nor mistaken, and its inspiration is verbal, plenary, and confluent. We mean by that that the very words are inspired by God. They are fully inspired, completely inspired, not some portions of the Bible, but the whole of the Bible is inspired, and that God uses the personalities and characteristics of biblical writers to produce His Word exactly what He wanted to be written. Now that's essentially what Paul is teaching in verse 16 when he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Before we look at that text and other texts as well, I think it's important that we see this text in biblical context. We answer the question, why is the Bible necessary? Well, you see, the only way we can know God is by a self-disclosure. The only way you can know God is if He chooses to reveal Himself to us. Man was never intended to be without a word from God. Even in the garden, before the fall, the Lord spoke to Adam, taught him how to interpret his world, spoke to him and told him what his task was. And then after the fall of man into sin, the written word became necessary. Apart from his written word, we wouldn't know God's name. 
We would know nothing of his salvation. We would know nothing of our need for that salvation. We need God's written word, his self-revelation, in order that we understand these things. So that's the broad context for 2 Timothy 3.16. That's why we need the Bible. And that's why approaches to life that are severed from the Bible are so dangerous. For example, someone attempts to define ethics apart from the Bible, but they're doing so without knowledge of who God is, without knowing what man's need is, and what God has done about that need in Christ. And you're supposed to establish ethics without knowing these things? What's true, what's not, what's good, what's not, what's appropriate, what is not, without knowing who God is, what man is, what our need is, what God has done about that need. One of the great concerns I think that many of us have is the influence that um, evolutionary theory has had in our culture, so that it is assumed to be fact, and it is taught in all of the schools, and will continue to be, undoubtedly. You know, young people, long ago when I was sitting in my high school science classes and later in my college uh, science class, recalling, uh, recalling this as I was thinking about this sermon, I really determined long ago not to be intimidated by a man's credentials. I mean, after all, this fellow believes that he's the product of evolution out of green scum, Um, I really didn't take that too seriously. I heard the arguments. I investigated Christian scientists who replied to the arguments extremely well. And you can still find those in many, many places. But the influence of evolutionary theory on ethics, if you, this sounds simplistic, but it really is true, that if you teach men that they have evolved from green scum, they're going to act like scum. It really is true. You know, I rarely use scorn. But God does in Isaiah 44. And there are times in which you just pour scorn out of it. You know this little limerick? Once I was a tadpole beginning to begin. Then I was a frog with my tail tucked in. Then I was a monkey in a banyan tree. And now I'm a professor with a Ph.D. Well, let's get to the teaching of the text. (laughs) Verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Let's say a few things about it now. First of all, all Scripture, pasa, grafe, theopneustas, all Scripture, grafe, all sacred writing is inspired by God. The apostolic view is that the words are inspired. Now, the modern attempt has been to say, well, we can hold that the thoughts are inspired, but not the words. What are thoughts without words? It would be like music without notes. You see, it's a silly thing to say the thoughts are inspired, but not the words. No, no, what Paul is teaching, the very writings are inspired by God, the very words and it says all Scripture is, theopneustos, the word means God breathed, to breathe out. Speaking of the divine origin, like God blowing through a woodwind instrument producing the music. It's not so much 
inspiration as expiration. God breathing out every word, every syllable, every jot and tittle of the original has God as its primary author. And notice that it says here in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture, the law, the prophets, the writings, and the New Testament also. For in John 16, Jesus indicates that he would bring the canon to a close. Now will you notice with me that these sacred writings breathed out by God, all scripture, that it's given for our correction? Notice that it says... All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, for correction. Now I think it's important that we park here for a moment because 2 Timothy 3.16 does not affirm that the scriptures stand in need of correction, but that the scriptures are for our correction. We stand under the authority of the Bible. The Bible does not stand under our authority. And I think that we can already draw some necessary implications from what we have seen in this text. The first implication is that an inerrant autograph, that is to say the original manuscripts, being inerrant, is the only view of the Bible that accords with God's nature. Since he is the author and he is the truth, his word must be true. Imagine this syllogism. The Bible is the word of God... The Bible is the Word of God with errors, therefore the conclusion would be God errs. To say that the Bible errs denies that God is the God of truth. The Bible does not err. God has given to us His Word on the basis of His own veracity, and therefore you can trust your Bible. And this is the only view that can yield incontestable truth. The whole theological enterprise of the church, all of our ethical issues that we attempt to resolve on the basis of the Bible, would be nonsense if we could not trust this book. Now let's take what Paul says and look back, asking another question. What did Jesus think about the Bible? Well, that's a great question. Jesus treated the Bible as the verbally inspired book of God, just as we have it in 2 Timothy 3.16. Jesus said, have you never read? Jesus said, it is written. Jesus said, search the scriptures. How did he crush the temptations of Satan? It is written. No debate, no question, God has spoken. Let me give you a few examples in rapid fire. Uh, Mark 7.13 affirms that the law of Moses is God's word. When the Pharisees put their tradition in place of Scripture, Jesus said, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. John 10.34-36, Christ vindicates himself from blasphemy, appealing to the Old Testament, and he added, the Scripture cannot be broken. Matthew 22, 31 and following, Christ appeals to the tense of a verb in making his point. That's verbal inspiration. In Matthew 22, 42 through 44, he defends his deity by an appeal to the word Lord in Psalm 110. 
After his resurrection in Luke 24, Jesus preached about himself on the Emmaus Road by taking those disciples through the Old Testament, setting his seal, the text tells us, upon the law, the prophets, and the writing. And in John 16, he provides the ground for the New Testament as he promises to guide his church into all truth, and that is just a small sampling of what Jesus thought about the Bible. And if you claim to be the disciple of the Lord Jesus, and yet you have a view of the Bible that is not Jesus' view of the Bible, what right do you have as a disciple of your Lord to have a view of the Bible that differs from His? What about other scriptures? Do we have other places in the Bible that speak of the inspiration and authority of the Bible? Oh, it's legion. Here are a few in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Concerning his salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now in this text in 1 Peter 1, the prophets, he says, wrote down what God intended, whether they understood what they wrote or not. They often did not understand what they wrote, but they wrote the Word of God. That affirms the divine inspiration of the Bible. Keep your finger here and turn, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Because along with 2 Timothy 3.16, this is perhaps one of the most important passages Verses about inspiration of the Bible. Second Peter chapter one verse twenty one. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now the term used for carried along is a term that's used in Acts 27.17 for the ship in the storm being borne along by the wind. Peter is teaching the controlling powerful influence of the Holy Spirit in the writing of the sacred scriptures. Divine inspiration. In Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that soon must take place. John wrote down what God showed him and wanted him to write down. 2 Peter chapter 3, 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable twist to their destruction as they do the other scriptures. In 2 Peter 3, Peter classes the writings of Paul with the other scriptures, saying that the writings of Paul are divinely inspired. And I will spare you the many, many, many scriptures in the New Testament that reference the old in which it is clear that for scripture to say a thing is for God to say a thing. One example, Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then the writer proceeds to quote from Psalm 95. So for the Holy Spirit to speak is for the Scripture to speak. For Scripture to speak 
is for the Holy Spirit to speak. Now, we are but scratching the surface with these examples. We've not touched upon scores of New Testament passages. We've not even delved into the Old Testament at all. But everywhere you see the same thing. The Bible is God's inspired, authoritative word. That is the unified view of the Bible concerning itself. And we are not justified in holding to a view of the Bible's inspiration that is not taught by the Bible itself. Well, I'm told, and have been told this ever since I was a student, especially in a secular university, that the Bible is an exploded book filled with errors. Well, let's ask that question. Are there errors in the Bible? No, there are no errors in the Bible. I can say that plainly and clearly. God is its author. He's the God of truth. There are no errors in the Bible. Are there difficulties? Sure. What do you expect? It comes from the hand of the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. Of course there are difficulties. B.B. Warfield long ago said, It is a reasonable principle recognized among critics of secular historians that two writers must not be held to be contradictory where any natural mode of harmonizing can be imagined. And then he proceeded to show how the critics violate this by erecting silence into contradiction. There are difficulties, but there are no errors. And most of the difficulties that we face are very, very few in number. Most are cleared up by our knowledge as it progresses. For example, there was a time when the critics said that Moses could not have written the five books ascribed to him because writing was not known in the time of Moses. And then there was the discovery of Tel El Amarna, the Amarna tablets, uh, Rosh Shamra, the Ugaritic texts, uh, showing that writing far, far preceded the time of Moses. Uh, for years, the critics said that Belshazzar of Daniel 5 never existed, and now there's no historian worth his salt that doubts it because it's right there in the Nabonidus cylinder. Other supposed errors are cleared up when we realize that inerrancy does not mean pedantic precision and that the Bible does not use scientific language but uses phenomenological language. What do I mean? Well, we are not in error when we speak of sunrise and sunset. We're just speaking common phenomenological language, and the Bible does that too. That's not an error. Other supposed errors are cleared up by closely reading the text. One thing that Raymond Dillard taught us at Westminster Seminary was to out-exegete the critics by doing a better job of understanding the text. For example, the critics say that there are two accounts of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, are contradictory. So we are to believe that an editor, a redactor, actually brought Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 together right there in the beginning of the book, though the accounts are contradictory. That's what they teach. But I think our Sunday school children could tell you that there are not two accounts of creation. In Genesis 1, we find a creation account that is chronological. In Genesis 2, we find an account of what God intends for man in the garden. Just read the accounts, and it clears up. So where's the real issue? The real issue is the question of authority. Our autonomy or God's word? My sinful human heart determining or submission to the word of God? The Bible is 
essential to understanding life. It is God's authority over us, and we are not an authority over the Bible. There are no errors in the Bible. And if I believed it, I wouldn't be here preaching from his word. The sixth thing that I think we need to see, however, is right here in 2 Timothy 3, and that is the purpose of sacred scripture. What is the purpose? Well, the essential purpose of sacred scripture is found in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood, he says to Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's fundamentally why the evil one has a vested interest in trouncing the Bible, because the Bible is all about how sinners are saved. That's the theme of the Bible. But Paul specifically says what the Bible is for in verse 16 when he says, look at it, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. For teaching, God's word is for the purpose of removing and combating deception and the power of error. For rebuking, the Holy Spirit takes the word and probes our hearts in order to conform us to the image of his Son. For correcting, there's a note of healing after rebuke because the word here basically means to set straight. So our conduct must be set right because holding error or truth will determine your conduct. Training in righteousness, the word paideia, it's a word that has, has to do with the training of children. God is rearing children by his word. So, why the Bible? Because here we find salvation. In the believer's life, what is God doing? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Now, I remember years ago, a guest minister, PCA pastor, speaking to one of our Sunday school classes, and I was walking by at the time, and I listened in. And he said to the Sunday school class that was there, you know, you really need to ease up on this thought about coming back to evening service. You know, come if you want to. But, uh, you know, the Bible says come and worship on the Lord's Day, but it's kind of legalistic to say you have to come to two services. And I thought that was advice from the pit of hell. I was pretty upset about it. I continue to use it as an illustration because it continues to upset me. (laughs) You and I need more of God's Word, not less of it. We need to read it more. We need to hear it expounded more. The life of your ministers revolves around praying and studying over the Scriptures and coming and preaching and teaching to you because that's how we shepherd the flock. I need to be taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained in righteousness, and so do you. And we need it more, not less. Which leads me to a seventh thing that I want to say on the basis of this text, and that is that we should have a high and exalted view of the place of the preaching of the Word of God in our lives. Because, you see, the whole presupposition of the pastoral epistles is that there is an apostolic era, and the apostles are going to die. And there is a post-apostolic era that is to follow. 
And after the apostles, the Lord calls men to the office of teacher-preacher to expound God's word, equipping the man of God, as it says in verse 17, by the word. And then Paul will go on in the passage we will see next week, let's look at it, in chapter 4, and he will say this, I charge you, he's speaking to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." And so Paul the Apostle says, here is the inerrant, inspired, authoritative Word of God. And Timothy, you are to take that Word and preach that Word. And in a world of deception, when men will not endure sound doctrine, and increasingly the church struggles with impatience with and hostility to the truth, God's provision for His people is the faithful preaching of His Word. And so it must have a preeminent place in our lives. So you better guard this pulpit. You'd better be involved in guarding the seminaries that produce our preachers. You had better be careful about your choice of ministers because those who deny God's word or or who will not preach the whole counsel of God are like termites that eat away at the foundation of the church. In that little book by Dr. Criswell, he said this, Upon a day, a friend of mine went to a great northern university to study for his Ph.D. degree in pedagogy. While he was there, he made the friendship of a young student in the divinity school. When time came for this young preacher to get his degree in theology, a church in the Midwest called him to be their pastor. The young minister went to my friend who was studying for his doctor's degree in teaching and said these amazing words to him. I am in a great quandary. I've been called to be a pastor of a church in the Midwest, but it's one of those old-time, old-fashioned churches that believes the Bible is the Word of God. Now, I do not believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and I do not know what to do. My friend said to him, well, I can tell you what to do. The young theologue eagerly replied, what? And my friend said, I think you ought to quit the ministry. That is exactly what I also think. If a man does not believe that the Bible is the Word of God, he has no place in any pulpit in the land. All his preachments are nothing but speculations. And if he has not the authority of God back of what he says, he has nothing to say. As you sit under the preaching of the books of the Bible week and week after week after week, your confidence grows as you begin to understand its unity and see more of its authority. Well, that leads me to a final thing I want to say. If you will turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 6 through 8. 
And this final point is that the Word of God is the enduring Word. Isaiah 40, beginning with verse 6. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119, 152. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So when Diocletian persecuted the church, he tried to destroy all copies of the word of God. And he proclaimed an edict that every Bible should be burned, and that those refusing to give up their Bibles for burning should be executed. Imagine someone coming to your door and saying, give me your Bible or I'm going to execute you. He erected a column of triumph over an exterminated Bible with an inscription that is translated this way, the name of Christians has been extinguished. Well, here we sit, worshiping our God, loving his gospel, hearing his word, The Word of God stands forever. And God has so preserved His Word that you may have no doubt that the copy you have in your hands is substantially that of the original autograph of Scripture. And yes, I was going to say another, a lot about that. But I'm not. But I will say this. Some of you, undoubtedly, have heard the Word of God, and it makes no sense to you. You sit here, the preaching doesn't thrill your soul. Uh, You don't care about what you hear. Maybe you read your Bible, but it doesn't make sense to you. Why? I will tell you why. The Word of God that converts the soul converts the soul when God the Holy Spirit opens the soul to receive it. And the great need of your heart, if the Bible means nothing to you, it's meaningless to you, if you just don't get it, don't understand it, don't love to hear it preached, don't thrill at the truth, it's because you're an unregenerate heart. The regenerate heart loves the Word of God. And I remember growing up under a pastor who certainly believed the Word of God, and I heard him every Sunday And I was bored out of my socks. Didn't care a thing in the world about it. Went to a Sunday school class. Didn't care a thing in the world about it. Tried to read my Bible. Didn't make sense to me. And one day I heard a preacher. Terrible preacher, by the way. He didn't preach well at all. A lot of what he said wasn't true. But he quoted John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life God the Holy Spirit. I'd heard that verse a thousand times. God the Holy Spirit opened my heart and I received Jesus Christ. And that very night I gathered other young people around me and began to teach the Bible. I didn't know a thing about the Bible. 
But I tried because God put in my heart a love for his word. So I wonder, do you understand these truths? Do you know that you are ruined by the fall of Adam according to this book? That you must be redeemed through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, according to this book? And that you must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, according to this book, in order to know its truth? So people of God, build this church on God's Word. Build your home on God's Word. Build your life on God's Word. Read it. Love its very words. Love its message. Love Jesus found in its pages. Judge all things by this Word. Judge your experience by the Word. Judge your decisions by the Word. Be readers of the Bible. Be searchers of the Scriptures. Be hearers and doers of the Word of God. Do not neglect your Bibles, but go home and practice what you have heard this morning. Spurgeon said, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And if you are outside of Christ, here is where you find him, right here in his word. Here you see him on the cross, suffering in the place of sinners. Here you see him raised by God's power from the dead. Here you see him saying to sinners, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And children and young people, you can have confidence. You can have confidence in this book. For all flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's people said, Amen.